was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. And as he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Steve. We've been uh, working our way through the Gospel of Mark, uh, one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that begin the New Testament. And our record of Jesus, how he began his ministry, what he said, what he did, how he interacted with people, the kinds of things he thought about and worried about. We've seen Jesus begin his ministry by getting baptized by John the Baptist. Go to the north of Israel, uh, to Galilee, where he began to gather together disciples, began to teach and to heal and demonstrate who he was. A time of intensive training of his disciples. And then, when he is recognized as the Messiah by Peter, uh, one of his disciples, the whole gospel changes. This is sort of midway through the 16 chapters. And he begins this march, uh, a march that for him will be a death march to Jerusalem, to the center of power in Israel. Um, we've been seeing in the last few chapters how Jesus encounters power. He enters Jerusalem three times. The first time we celebrate on Palm Sunday, when Jesus enters on a donkey, as was prophesied, and is acclaimed by the crowd, the people in Jerusalem and the people following him, as the returning king, as the Messiah. He leaves. Jerusalem is no longer God's home. Jesus stays outside of Jerusalem. He returns a second time with authority and drives out all the people who had turned the temple, the temple courts, the place of worship into a marketplace, into a place of money changing, uh, into a place of commerce rather than God. The third time he returns, and this is this section that we're looking at is part of that third time, the powers that be recognize that they're going to have to deal with him. And we have seen over the past few Sundays the encounters as the elites of Jerusalem come and challenge him. We've seen the Sadducees, that is the aristocratic party of Jerusalem. We have seen the high priests. We've seen the teachers of the law. We've seen the Pharisees. Eventually, he shuts them all up. He answers well. The crowd is delighted. And we saw last week when Jesus answers the question, what is the greatest commandment? To love God, to love your neighbor. That with that, nobody else will challenge him. And so this encounter, this passage... This is the first time that Jesus just speaks plainly. He's not responding to a challenge. Nobody's trying to catch him out. This is Jesus choosing the topic that he wants to talk about and speaking to the crowd for the first time 
under his own authority, according to his own agenda. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of, the son of David? So this teaching is the series of encounters that he has had with the leaders. And now, for the first time, he is speaking clearly. He is speaking under his own steam, so to speak. Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? Messiah is a Hebrew word. In Greek, the same word is translated Christ. Literally, they mean the anointed one. That is the one anointed by God that is given God's authority and blessing and sent by God with a purpose. And the entire Old Testament promises Israel that God will send a Messiah who will redeem them, who will bring them back into relationship with him, that will solve all problems. Uh, now, it's clear when you see how people respond to Jesus that at that time, everybody had a different idea in their head of what a Messiah meant. Some people thought the Messiah would be the end of the age and that would be it for this world. Some people thought the Messiah would be sort of a some kind of military figure who would help drive out the Romans and, and get rid of the occupation. People had all different ideas of what the Messiah actually would do and what it would look like. And much of what Jesus is doing here and in other places is clarifying exactly who he is and what the, this term Messiah, the anointed one of God, what that actually means. So it's Jesus explaining, Jesus um, unpacking this concept so that it becomes intelligible to the people. David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself, uh, Jesus is referring to King David, the first true king of Israel, the one who brought order to um, the Israelites and defended them from their enemies. Speaking by the Holy Spirit. Speaking by the Holy Spirit is a theme throughout the Bible, and it distinguishes God's speaking and God's authority from mere human proclamation, human opinion, human superstition. Peter, he, he is the one who the Gospel of Mark is based on. Peter says this about prophecy. This is Second Peter. You must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when we say that the Bible and the words of Scripture have authority, what we're saying is it is not just human opinion about God. Rather, it is men and women speaking with God's authority because the Holy Spirit is working through them. It doesn't mean that they're dictating. It doesn't mean that the, these are uh, dictated words from God. Everyone has their own will, their own style, their own vocabulary, their own understanding. Uh, 
But the authority and the worth and the significance of the words are guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. The Bible speaks in many ways, in poems, in prophecy, in history, uh, in songs. There's all kinds of genres in the Bible. But they are underpinned and undergirded by the Holy Spirit, and therefore we can trust them. And Jesus is saying here, what I am about to say is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit, guaranteed by God. You should pay attention to this. I'm talking with authority right here. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So Jesus here is quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from one of David's Psalms. David is a remarkable figure. You should read about him in the Bible. He was a shepherd. He was the youngest child. He was shooed off to the, the hills, and he spent a lot of time alone. And he spent a lot of time praying, singing, worshiping God. And his psalms are perhaps the richest source of prayer and worship and songs about God. And Jesus here is quoting from Psalm 110. One of, um, one of David's most important psalms. Psalm 110 is quoted in the Bible more than any other psalm, pretty much more than anything else in the Old Testament, because it is a messianic psalm. It is a psalm that promises that God will take care of his people. It's very short, and I'm going to read it to you. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew in the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. Easy peasy, right? Um, there's a lot in there. Short, but there's a lot to be unpacked. Um, but see how Jesus talks about it. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. It's not entirely obvious what they're delighted about there. This is uh, one of those passages that is quite um, subtle. He's asking them a question. Why did the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? I.e., why did they say the Messiah is going to be a descendant of David, part of his genealogy, a son of David? And what does Jesus answer? Well, yes, he is a son. He is the son of David. He is a human being. He has a human genealogy. It goes all the way from Mary back to David. The Gospels record that genealogy. But Jesus, the son of David, is also the Messiah is also the Son of God. 
And so Jesus right here is lifting up an aspect of the Messiah that perhaps at that time was not completely obvious. One of the reasons that this passage is um, a little opaque is we don't really know what the people back in that time thought. The teachers, the different factions in Israel and in Jerusalem had different ideas and different expectations of the Messiah. They all had their own agendas and their own goals, and they had their own ideas about what the Messiah was going to do. And so there is a little mystery here. You know, clearly the crowd is picking something up from what Jesus is saying. But we can highlight some themes that Jesus is raising here, something that he wants the crowd to be aware of, something that he wants them thinking about when they think about who the Messiah is and ultimately who he is. Notice that the psalm has a very exalted idea of the Messiah, not just a descendant of King David, not just some human genealogy, but someone who sits at the right hand of God, on God's throne, and rules with God's authority. And he has authority to rule not just Israel, he's not just going to be king and leader of Israel, but beyond Zion to the whole world. And he is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What on earth does that mean? Have you ever heard of Melchizedek? Um, Well, the issue here is that, as I say, Jesus is showing the crowd, showing the Israelites, that he is a much bigger person a much bigger figure, a much greater leader than they had imagined. He is not some simple king over one particular area. He is sitting, as I said, at the right hand of the throne. He is um, not just the son of David, he is the son of God. And he is a realm, a kingdom that is broader than Israel. And he is also this priest. Now, I'm going to read to you from Hebrews because it's the one place in the Bible where we get a glimpse of who this Melchizedek is. This is uh, from the book of Hebrews, which is a great place to understand Israel and how it is structured and what the rituals and what the beliefs are all about. And we read this. Jesus has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness then also king of Salem, which means king of peace. He is without a father or mother, without genealogy, without a beginning of days or the end of life. Like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. That's a remarkable description. Now, we don't know much more than I just read you about Melchizedek. But he appears first at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis, in Genesis 14. 
And he appears to Abraham after Abraham has made a covenant with God. And Abraham gives him a tithe, which means Melchizedek was Godward of uh, Abraham. Abraham, the man of faith, the founder of Israel, saw in Melchizedek, this figure, someone who he owed a tithe to, someone that had authority over him and his possessions. And so Melchizedek seems to have been, well, seems. Who was he? Right here, the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, is saying he's Jesus. That even before the human being, Jesus, there was one, Melchizedek, a priest who allowed human beings to relate to God, who stood between them and God. And somehow, in some sense, Jesus was present as a priest before he showed up in Israel as a child. I also think you see him right at the very beginning of Genesis when the Bible talks about God and Adam and Eve walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Who is that figure? Well, what does it mean? What is Jesus up to? As I say, this is opaque, this passage. If you read ten commentaries, they will give you ten different ideas about what Jesus is trying to do here. So I'm just going to pick up one theme and talk about that, this idea of priest, because that seems to be the new element that Jesus is offering here. What is a priest? Why would Jesus bring up this issue? Why would he attach the, issue, the idea of priest to the idea of Messiah? What is he explaining? What is he showing? What is he pointing to? Well, one of the great insights of the Protestant Reformation, this actually came from John Calvin, was the, the idea that if you look at the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament, there are three great categories of people that show up in God's people. There are the prophets, and the prophets reveal God's word, reveals God's truth, challenge the society when they stray from God's purpose. There are the kings. The kings are the ones that rule over God's people. The, the kings are the ones that organize God's people, protect them, and keep them moving in a direction. And there are the priests. The priests are the ones that come alongside people, help them in their suffering. In the, pre, in the Old Testament, the priests are the ones that help people, like the widows, they take care of them. They help people who are sick. If you are ill, you go to the priests. They are the ones that work in the temple, who bring people to God and help them relate to God. So you have prophets, speak truth, kings, organize, rule, lead, and you have priests, and the priests come alongside the people in their suffering and help them, lift them up, keep them moving towards God. Well, we've seen Jesus as prophet. He is the one that speaks God's truth to the power elite in Jerusalem. He is the one that teaches in the desert. He is the one that claims to have God's word and speaks with the authority of the Holy Spirit. We've seen Jesus as king. He is the one that has authority to command the storm. He has the authority to command uh, demons to leave possessed people. He has the authority to challenge 
Jerusalem and to drive people out of the marketplace there, the, the ones who turned the temple into a marketplace. Now, in Jerusalem, right next to the temple, Jesus is revealing this other aspect of himself. A priest. Someone who comes along pe alongside people in their suffering and helps them deal with the problems in life. So how should we think about this? Well, I think the easiest idea is to contrast Jesus, what he's revealing here, to what this crowd, or at least a large part of it, is expecting. A large part of Israel expected the Messiah to be a national leader, a military leader, who would challenge the occupation of Israel. The Romans had occupied Israel and they had installed Herod as their puppet king. They demanded high taxes and their legions were everywhere. And Israel expected God to save them militarily from Rome. They expected the Messiah to be a kind of warrior king to show up and lead them in a revolt. Which is great, you know, throwing off occupation, that's a great thing to do. That's what soldiers do. In fact, every war movie you've ever seen, that's how it happens. You get a band of brothers, they're brought together, a ragtag, they're turned into an army, they're united together, and then they are led into battle and fight the good fight, kill the bad people. But there's a problem with that model. That is a great model if you're tough and strong, if you've got no real problems in your life. When I, when I was a teenager, rather recklessly, a fit of, I don't know what, romantic idealism, I don't know, I joined the military, the uh, English equivalent of the National Guard. I did it while I was still at school. You just had to go on the weekends and during the summer. And I always wanted a red beret because they're beautiful. So, rather recklessly, I signed up for para training. And there's one particular test, there's a whole series of tests, it, it lasts six months. One particular test, you go over an assault course, which is devastating, usually at six o'clock in the morning, and in England it's wet and muddy, and you're covered in filth, and your boots are covered in filth. And they make you climb up this scaffolding, this big tower in the middle of the woods. And it's just steel poles, wet with dew and your muddy boots. And they make you go up about 60 feet. And you've got two parallel beams that you've got to climb up onto. And you've got to stand on them and come to attention as best as you can. And there's a sergeant up there. And he says, who are you, soldier? And the proper response is to give your name and your rank and your serial number as you're at attention, standing up there without fear, looking straight ahead over his head. And it's terrifying. All you can think of is your muddy boots on those dew-covered poles 60 feet up in the air and how mutilated you will be if you fall down. And most of us did it, but about 10 of us couldn't do that and tried repeated, repeated times and Sergeant screamed at them, you're scum. Get off my obstacle course. Get out of my sight. You are not to talk to my soldiers. I never want to see you again. 
and they were shooed off through the woods to a waiting truck, and we never saw them again. Who are you, soldier? The one thing that you couldn't say is weak, vulnerable, and scared. That was the one thing you couldn't say to the sergeant. Soldiers are expected to be tough and strong and get the job done. Soldiers are expected to follow their leaders, follow their officers, do what is necessary even unto death. And Jesus potentially could inspire people to do that in his name. Go off and kill people, fight fights. But what about the people who can't? You know, there have been many religions in the world where that's what followers do. But Jesus is saying, no, that is not the nature of my leadership. That is not the nature of what God has sent into the world through me. Yes, I'm a king. Yes, I speak the truth. But I'm also a priest, prophet, priest, and king. What does that mean? He does not expect everyone who follows to be some strong, tough, fearless soldier. There is room in Jesus' kingdom for people who are afraid, people who are vulnerable, people who are weak, people who don't have it all together, people like us. You know, Paul, one of the greatest followers of Jesus, one of the greatest soldiers, said this, to keep me from becoming conceited, because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That is a strange idea. What is, Jesus, what is Paul saying there about Jesus and grace? We are not Christians because we're good people. We're not Christians because we're mentally strong and tough, because we're courageous, because we've got life together. You could make an army out of such people, and in the world there are plenty of armies like that. But that is not what the kingdom of Christ looks like. In the kingdom of Christ, there is room for everybody. It is an invitation for those who are not strong, those who don't have it together, those that have problems. You know, um, I teach sailing in New York Harbor and sail all summer, sail past uh, the Statue of Liberty. And there's a poem on the bottom of that, wonderful statue, a light to the world. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be breathe free the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp besides the golden door. 
Now, that was a poem written by a human being, but that's Jesus right there. That is the priestly, gracious Christ inviting people who don't have things together. That is an invitation. The homeless, the tempest-tossed, the wretched refuse of your teeming show, the people that nobody else would put up with, nobody else wants, nobody else would like to be part of their world or their kingdom. For a long time, uh, I only became a Christian when I was 30. The model that I had of the perfect community was not a Christian church, which I thought was just a bunch of uh, self-righteous do-gooders with a bunch of rules. did not look attractive from the outside. Um, The group that I admired the most was AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. When I uh, first came to Hoboken, I rented a, a place on Washington Street next to St. Matthews. And they have a a building right there in the corner that is used by AA for several meetings. And I would come out of my apartment, and I'd see this group of people. And they they were completely different ages, old and young, different clothes, people in businesses, people tattooed with skateboards, the most diverse group of people. And they were chatting away gaily, completely happy with each other. Why? Because in that room, they had confessed the worst aspects of themselves to each other. They admitted that their life was not together. And and more than that, you know, if you look at the first thing that AA asks members to do, they had admitted that they were powerless. They weren't heroes. They weren't strong. The first thing that you do in AA is admit you're absolutely powerless. And because they'd seen each other do that, because they had seen uh, the worst of each other, they'd heard the stories of the worst that these people, that uh, alcoholics can do to each other and to their loved ones and to their life, they felt completely accepted. Other people in the group had seen and heard the worst and yet still accepted their presence in that group. And it changed everything. You could see the laughter, the joy of all these different groups of people. I would say that is a good model for the Christian church. I think that that's what Jesus is revealing when he calls himself priest. What is our heart's desire? What does the human heart want? To be known completely by somebody, to the very depths of who you are, to be completely known, to be completely transparent, to be completely vulnerable, and yet to know that you are accepted that your lover knows you completely and still loves you completely. That's what we all want. And that's what the gospel offers us. You know, the, the Christian story is that we used to have that relationship with God. In Genesis, Adam and Eve are completely naked. That is completely vulnerable, transparent, exposed to each other. And they were completely without shame, in their relationship with each other and with God. They had nothing to hide. They shared everything and were loved. And that that's the way it's meant to be. And then, of course, in the fall, we lost that. The first thing that happens after the fall is they find things to cover themselves. They stop building artifice, a facade. They stop protecting themselves from each other and from God. 
That's what we lost. That's what we're looking for. And that's what Jesus is bringing when he says he's the priest. Later in the book of Hebrews, we read this. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let me say that again. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's the gospel. Everything is known. Everything is known about you and about me. Everything laid bare. And we are completely loved and accepted by Christ. Not just accepted, but remember what the Messiah is. Someone sent by God to come close. To continue the military metaphor, let me get, some of you have heard this illustration. I was reading a book about the Navy SEALs, and one of the, the stories was about them rescuing hostages. And so they storm this place where the hostages are, and they, they fight and kill the bad guys, and they go down in the basement, and they kick open the door, and that's the room that the hostages have been held in. And they, they expect to be greeted and welcomed, and uh, they expect the hostages to come out into the light with them. But instead, the hostages are just curled up on the floor in a fetal position. They are absolutely terrified. They have been so brutalized, they have been so abused, that they are just afraid of everything. And they just curled up in the, the dirt in a fetal position. And all these tough soldiers with all their weapons and all their gear are standing there, and they have no idea what to do. What are, we can't carry all these people. What are we going to do? And then one of them has an insight. He lays aside his weapon, and he goes down into the basement, and he gets down in the dirt right next to one of the hostages. And he doesn't say anything. He just looks at this person in the face just lays next to him in the dirt and looks at him, shows him that he is there, that he's not going to mistreat him, that he accepts his position, and he is going to stay with him. And all the seals do that. And gradually, these hostages in the fetal positions come to trust, wow, this is real. This isn't a game. I really am being rescued. There is someone who cares enough to come and get down in the dirt next to me. And gradually, as they learned to trust, they stood up and they were all rescued. It's not just being loved and accepted. It is someone who's willing to get down in the dirt with you to come alongside you. 
to be in the mess with you so that you can be saved, so you can follow them home. That's what it means that Jesus came as a priest. We now see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And these things remain, faith, hope, love. But the greatest of those is love. If you have faith, you'll follow somebody who's a leader. If you have hope, you will trust them and follow them to the end. But if you have love, then anything is possible. And that's what Jesus reveals. Not just a truth speaker or prophet, not just a king who's going to get the job done, but somebody who's not going to leave until everybody is ready to come along, who's willing to get down in the dirt, who doesn't demand heroes who will follow him and die, but is a hero who fights the battles we cannot fight. And therefore, it doesn't matter where we start, how weak we are. We can follow him with hope, with faith, in love. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we are lost souls. We are weak. We are filled with problems we scarcely dare name. And yet, Lord, you, through Christ, have revealed a grace and a forgiveness and a love so big that all of us are included. Help that to be the truth that guides our life. Help us to follow and trust. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.